0: You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. We are continuing in our Madison Multiply uh, series called uh, Learning Evangelism from uh, Jesus. And it's been, uh, I don't know about you, it's been really challenging for me. Because evangelism is something I know I'm supposed to do as a Christian, um, but it's also that thing that I I really struggle at actually just doing as well. And so as I've prepared this message, this is now, uh, this is my final tour (laughs) uh, of giving this message. It's challenging every time because I'm like, Lord, help me uh, to live this out in my own life because I need, I need to learn from Jesus and how he demonstrated uh, living a life on And so I hope all of us, uh, as as, as our prayer, as uh, Madison Multiply pastors, is just that our our family of churches would be shaped uh, by how we see Jesus care for the lost. And that by God's power and by our faithfulness, we would see so many conversions across our city for the glory of God. Amen? May that be true. In our time this morning, we're going to consider the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Jesus and Zacchaeus. And if you grew up in the church, you probably are familiar with this story. And if you grew up in the church, you're also probably familiar with the little tune that I've had stuck in my head all month long, right? Want to sing it together? Okay, let's go. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up on the chikamore, Lord he wanted to see. Can we keep going? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I just want to say, I've been to Eastside, I have been to Redeemer City, and now I'm at the Vine, and you all are the only church to sing it all the way through. I don't know if we're giving out trophies, but... I don't know if it warrants a trophy. <laughs> but before we open up to Luke chapter 19 and look at Zacchaeus, I, uh, there was an interesting article. It's actually a year old from an organization called Gallup. And the article is entitled, U.S. church membership falls below majority for the first time. So U.S. church membership falls below majority for the first time. And this is last year, meaning for the first time in American history, more people... Um, are saying they don't have a church home, then who do? And that's probably not too surprising to our ears, right? That kind of makes sense, right, as we look around and observe things. But what I did find surprising is that this polling has been going on for decades. And 20 years ago, in the year 2000, like I'm in high school, 20 years ago, this same poll found that 70% said that they did have a church that they went to, that they did have a church home, 70%. But today, that number is all the way down to 47%. So it's a 20% drop in 20 years, from 70% to 47%. Like, Where will the next 20 years take us, right? Lifeway Research and Pew Research really collaborate this discovery in their own polling, saying that six out of every ten evangelical churches have either plateaued or are in decline. Sixth out of every ten evangelical churches. So, so what is driving this decline in church membership or church attendance across America? Well, all three of these organizations say the exact same thing. It's those with no religious affiliation. Or what they bracket as the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Those with no religious affiliation. They say consistently one in four American adults claim no religious affiliation today. And who makes up? The nuns. It's people like me. It's my age and younger, it's the Millennials, the Generation Z. We are the nuns. We're we're living, this is not surprising, we're living in a rapidly increasing post-Christian, post-church culture. That's just our reality. So I can say this in confidence. Of the 200,000 or so people that live in the Madison area, the majority of our neighbors and coworkers simply will have no interest in coming to our church or any church at all. Yet despite this decline, as I try to paint it as a decline, right, half of our population is religious. Half of our population will say they go to church. That's a lot of people. So, so I say that to say that there is a way that we could make this church, we can make the vine work and be a, a sustainable church without any regard to those who are unchurched or who, the, the nuns. We can make this church work, right? We can, we can create a beautiful, clean website. We can cast compelling vision. We can build really helpful programs for you all or for the community, and then we can just sit back and rely on the Christians that we know who are going to be moving into our town. And we know, we see this happen all the time. Thank you, Epic. Thank you, UW, right? We can sit back and be a church destination for the already church folks who are coming into our town, right? This could be our church growth strategy. We could go after this really hard, right? except we'll learn from the life of Jesus from his encounter with Zacchaeus hear this that Jesus was far more concerned while he was on earth with those who had no interest in church than those who did Look at with me at verse 10 Luke 19 Luke 19 is where I'm at Verse 10 this is a summary statement of this encounter And it's actually out of the words of Jesus' own mouth. He says, for the Son of Man, Jesus, he came to seek and to save who? The lost. The lost. That's Jesus' mission, to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came to earth. And I don't like this reflection by Tim Keller, but I think he's spot on. Listen to how Tim Keller reflects on Jesus' mission. He says this, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible believing religious people of his day. Our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to our contemporary churches. We tend to draw conservative, button down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated, or the broken and marginal, avoid church. That can only mean one thing, that if the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not de- be declaring the same message that Jesus declared. That's painful to hear, right? You see, Jesus came with a mission to reach those who would, who would never show up at church. And as his church, we're called to join him, we're invited to join him on this mission so this is our big idea that we're rallying around today that as jesus cares for the church we the church care or as, let me say that as jesus cares for the lost we the church care about the lost too as jesus cares about the lost we the church care about the lost too let's pray again inviting god to uh, be at work in our hearts and minds lord we love you Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts. Lord, you prune back any hedge of disbelief that we might see you most clearly in these moments together. Lord, we ask by the power of your spirit and word that this would be true. So your name we pray, amen. Well, again, we're in Luke 19, and in this encounter with Zacchaeus, we really see a clear way in which Jesus demonstrates to us what it looks like for us to care for the lost. And so our direction is really just kind of following the narrative this morning. The first, we'll see this picture of the lost. We'll see Zacchaeus, a man without faith. So We'll see a picture of the lost. And then we'll see our Savior. We'll see Jesus and how he's presented. And then lastly, we'll tie it all together. What do we learn from Jesus, our Savior, as he interacts with the lost? So we'll look at the lost, we'll look at our Savior, and then we'll look at what we learn from Jesus' encounter. Sound good? Okay, I'll take that as a yes. In all of Jericho where this story, as you see there in verse 1, in all of Jericho where this story takes place, I would say this. Let me suggest that Zacchaeus may have been perhaps the most unlikely candidate to be welcomed into the family of God. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 2 with me. Luke tells us that he's a tax collector. And this is a big problem. We know Rome at this time is global power, right? And it's not a, a pleasant occupying force looking to instill like, uh, stability and peace in the region. But rather they're looking to bring uh, their, their, their brutal tyrants, right? Slaughtering innocent lives to expand and enlarge their empire. And wherever Rome conquered, they'd place heavy taxation upon their subjects, And they would employ local civilians, and in this case, local Jews, uh, to collect the taxes that they imposed on the people. Because they knew they needed somebody from within, somebody who knew the people, someone who knew where the money was at. And so they'd employ these local Jews, and they, they wouldn't pay these tax collectors. Rather, they would say very smartly, hey, we expect this much in the taxation, and anything more than that, go ahead and keep. And in addition, they'd also give them a squad of Roman soldiers to help enforce any taxation that Rome might demand or that they personally just conjure up to fill their own coffers, right? That's a system ripe for corruption. We could see that, right? These were men not only cheating you out of your own hard-earned money and profiting from you, but these were men, they were sold out to the enemy. They were collaborating with Rome, helping fund your very oppression, can you imagine a worse person? It's hard to think of a modern example. It's perhaps the only example might be of that of Jews and Nazis, of a Jew like collaborating with the Nazis to help fund the oppression of the Jews. Like It's unthinkable, right? This is why tax collectors are hated. They're thieves and traitors to their Jewish nation. And so despised at this time... Uh, Jewish law, I learned, said they didn't even consider tax collectors as human beings. So that if a tax collector was talking to you, it was okay to lie to them for lying to an animal such as they were considered was not a sin in Jewish law. Except Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector, is he? Look at verse 2. He's a chief tax collector. A chief tax collector. Meaning in some sort of way, he's like top of the pyramid tax collector with all other tax collectors in the Jericho region, perhaps reporting to him, no doubt, reaping the riches also from their uh, tax collection. Which is why he also says in verse 2 that Zacchaeus is rich. Zacchaeus is rich. And though he's rich, though he's profitable, the other side of the coin, though, is that Zacchaeus is an outcast. He's barred from entering the synagogue as a Jew. He's barred from entering the synagogue. He's shunned in every Jewish relationship. Tax collectors were unclean. They're lumped together with the prostitutes and the sinners, the outcasts. Come near a tax collector and you defile yourself. But as we look at verse 3, we see that Zacchaeus has a curiosity about Jesus, doesn't he? But Luke tells us that because of the crowd, because of his small stature, Zacchaeus can't get near. You, you can kind of imagine the scene, knowing how despised that Zacchaeus is in this moment, as he's trying to like squirm his way through the crowd. The people pushing, casting insults at him, like, Hey, you little disgusting pig, you're not getting through. This is our Messiah, not yours. The crowd won't let Zacchaeus get near Jesus even though he's powerful enough to throw you in jail, even though he's rich enough to have the biggest house in town, he can't get near Jesus. But he has a curiosity. And so he climbs a tree. Let me tell you something. Then and now, rich, wealthy men do not climb trees. Zacchaeus is painting a picture of what it is to be lost. To have no faith in God. That no matter how many dollars you've amassed in your bank account, no matter how far you've climbed the ladder of success at your work, no matter the thousands of followers you've gained on your Instagram, all is meaningless and empty without Jesus. And there's a searching and a seeking for something more fulfilling, more meaningful in your life without Jesus. And here's Zacchaeus searching and seeking for something that his riches and his power could not get him. And so he goes out on a limb, pun intended. He goes on a limb curious about the person of Jesus. I don't know all of your stories this morning as I look out in this room. But perhaps Zacchaeus is your story as well. Curious about the person of Jesus. Searching and seeking for something more meaningful and fulfilling in your life. This is a story of great news for you. Jesus came to seek and save you. That was his mission, to to seek and save the lost. It's good news for all of us, isn't it? Amen? He came to save us. And now we get to see how he does exactly that as we see this narrative unfold. And by this time in Jesus' life, it's near the end of his life, he's on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus would have been perhaps one of the most well-known people in all of Israel. And he's passing through here Jericho, which is one of the most powerful cities in all of Israel. It's not the capital, but it's an important city. So we can think like New York City, important. It's a big, powerful city. Yet as he's coming into this city, notice who he asks for, or notice who he doesn't ask for. He doesn't ask to meet the mayor of New York City. I had to look it up, Eric Adams. He doesn't ask to meet Mr. Adams, right? Right? He doesn't say, Hey, let me come in to meet like the chief priest, the, the well known religious people like Tim Keller. Like, I'm not asking to meet with Tim Keller, does he? Rather, Jesus comes into the city and chooses to meet with the most despised and hated man in the city, Zacchaeus, the filthy traitor and thief. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Those Zacchaeus is is hidden, perhaps in a tree, unseen by the crowd, Jesus sees Zacchaeus. And I envision all this happening in, in slow motion. And this is literally probably a crowd of hundreds of people with Jesus. So, so think of like a parade in your local town, or think of if you remember like Tiger Woods in his heyday with his red shirt on, the mass at the golf, uh, uh, tee, or what is it? Golf course at the golf course, like following Tiger, and you can see the little red shirt as he's making his way through the golf uh, tournament, right? The swarms of people, there's swarms of hundreds of people around Jesus as they're coming down the street of Jericho, all saying, Jesus, like, heal me. Jesus, tell me this. Like, Jesus, answer this question. All clamoring for Jesus' attention as Jesus then is walking on the road. Suddenly he stops and he turns and he looks up in a tree. And I can imagine the, the clamoring of the crowd perhaps like slowly coming to a simmer, to silence as they all, like Jesus is looking at something. I want to see what he's looking at as they all turn and look. And there's Zacchaeus. And all eyes on Zacchaeus, Jesus shockingly says, right, I want to spend time with you. We might think in this moment, Jesus, that's pretty presumptuous. To invite yourself over to somebody's house, someone you don't even know, right? What is Jesus doing here? Why is he inviting himself into Zacchaeus's home? Well, again, remember the social and religious customs of the day as it relates to Jews and tax collectors, because it simply would have been unthinkable for any Jew to enter the home of a tax collector, let alone a religious leader such as Jesus. So because Zacchaeus literally, he cannot invite Jesus into his home. That's not acceptable. Jesus invites himself. Jesus invites himself, much to the shock of Zacchaeus. Look at verse 6. So he, Zacchaeus, hurries and comes down and receives him, receives Jesus joyfully. Zacchaeus has no idea that when he climbed that little tree that this would be the result. He's shocked. He's a man that's used to being despised and hated and overlooked. So when Jesus looks at him in the eye, you have to imagine he's grabbing onto the branches like, okay, here comes another rebuke, right, from the religious leaders. Yet Jesus says and calls him by name, Zacchaeus, I want to spend time with you. And and not, not with these in the crowd, and the crowd would have been religious people. They're going to the Passover to celebrate the Passover. This is, this is the religious crowd over here. But he turns to the unreligious, to Zacchaeus, the outcast, and says, I want to spend time with you. It shocks Zacchaeus, and it also shocks the crowd, doesn't it? Verse 7, And when they, the crowd, saw it, they all grumbled, saying, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And going to Zacchaeus' home, presumably to share a meal, Jesus is willingly polluting himself. He's willingly polluting himself. He's ignoring every social and religious custom of his day so that, why does he do it? To fulfill the mission for which he was sent, which is to seek and to save the lost, to make the unseen seen, to make the outcast belong. In the final moments of this story in verse 8, we see the marvelous result of a lost person encountering the person of Jesus. Some of the best words in all of scripture here. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I don't know about you, but very few people willingly give away 50% of their wealth. Granted, Justin Laurel just gave away all of their possessions yesterday. (laughs) But if you think of all your wealth and giving away half of it freely, willingly, like who does that? Not even to your kids, right? But here he's doing it to the poor. Like the guy willing to sell out his family and country to gain power is giving it away like it's Halloween candy. Like what has happened to Zacchaeus? We know the answer. It's the overwhelming love and grace of Jesus, isn't it? A church tradition tells us that Zacchaeus goes on from this moment to become an early church leader, forsaking the selfish, greedy practice of tax collection to become an agent of God's overwhelming grace and mercy into the lives of all those around him. This is what happens when the lost are brought into the presence of Jesus. That's beautiful. So, what do we learn from Jesus and how we today? Care for the lost. There's a lot here. I want to suggest three things, and I want to try and make it very practical for each one of us. But three things. One, we take the initiative with the lost. One, we take the initiative with the lost. We know Zacchaeus is a social outcast, he's despised, he's overlooked, he is hated. And if there's to be any sort of relationship with Zacchaeus, Jesus has to make the first move, and so he does, right? He invites himself into Zacchaeus' home. In the polling I referenced at the beginning, another statistic that they threw out there was that 13% of those who do not attend church, the unchurched, indicated they would visit a local church if they were invited by a local community member. Someone they didn't know gives them an invitation. 13% of the time, perhaps they come to church. I thought that was actually pretty high. But regardless of that number, if that same invitation came from a friend, someone they did know, like you, that number triples to 43% from 13% to 43%, making it a nearly 50-50 chance that they'd come along to church if you just asked them. To me, this study suggests that the unchurched may be suspicious of the institution of church, but they're more than willing to hear the message of church from people like you, from people they know and respect. One Christian author reflects on this by saying this, Merely opening our doors each Sunday is no longer sufficient. Offering a good product is not enough. What is clear is that great swaths of America will not be reached through Sunday morning services. It's not a question of improving the product of church meeting and evangelistic events. It means reaching people apart from meetings and events. Meaning that like Jesus, we are called in some way to invite ourselves into the lives of those around us that don't know Jesus. To invite ourselves, to make ourselves present and available to come into the lives of the lost for the church. The unchurched are unlikely. The unchurched are unlikely to come through the front doors of our church. And if that's you today, we're we're glad you're here. We pray for you. We want to get to know you. But that's just the reality of where we are today. The church will only reach the lost only as Christians courageously take the initiative in cultivating genuine and authentic relationship with those around us. So, so let me, in this category, let me suggest two really practical ways that perhaps we can move and do this in really faithful ways. And we, we say this, we've said this often, we said this before at the church, but let me, let me reiterate them. One is where you live, be front yard people. Where you live Be front yard people. Meaning where you live in an apartment complex or a house or a condo, wherever that is, be visible. A lot of us have have kids. And if you're going to play with your kids outside, play with them outside in a way in which other neighborhood kids might see you and you can invite them into whatever playing you're doing together. Be visible as you play with your kids. A lot of us have porches, a front porch and a back porch. Sit on the front porch. So you can be seen as people walk by. You can chat with neighbors. Wherever you live, like take walks often on repeat. And if you need an excuse to go on a walk, get a dog. <laughs> but as you walk, there's purpose in it. If a neighbor is out, say hi to them. Say, what's your name? So that you can call them by name as you continually walk around your neighborhood, for hopefully for the decades to come. Of Tad, how are you doing today? Shelly, how are you doing today? You can also know their dog's names as well. It's very helpful, right? But on those walks, to also pray for your neighbors as you walk by. But where you live, be front yard people. Make that a discipline, a habit. And a companion with that is to leverage your dining room table. To leverage your dining room table, to open your home to share the love of Jesus. Zach says this all the time, that our dining room table might be our greatest evangelistic tool moving forward. Leverage it. Just like in Jesus' day, sharing a meal together communicates a desire and an earnestness to get to know somebody. It signals like a welcomeness of like, my home, you're, you're welcome in my home. And I don't know, people may say no to coming to church, but I don't know of anyone who really declines a free home-cooked meal. Even an offer to go to Culver's, Right? Even around the the table, there's just as, like a, as you sit around and share meal, good food, good drinks. There's just like a normalizing of people, isn't there? There's just a disarming of suspicion. You can show you care by asking good questions, and learning and listening for who the people you live or work with, who they really are. So, so two, I think, really faithful ways that we can do this, initiating with the loss, is just be front yard people. And to leverage our dining room table. And I think these things sound good. I, you know, I'm saying them, right? But if we're going to actually do them, we have to plan and prioritize on our calendar, don't we? And so if, if you were to pull out your phone right now or to open up your calendar, like, does your calendar reflect that you care about the lost as Jesus cares about the lost? But we also have to take this another step further. Because if we're going to learn from Jesus, we must also consider who Jesus took the initiative with. In the midst of those crowded Jericho streets, right, hundreds of potential dinner guests, all suitable. Jesus chose to share a meal with Zacchaeus, the most despised and hated man in all of town. That's who Jesus started with. We have to ask ourselves, how can we be more like Jesus in welcoming those whom others have shunned? Who is the person in your neighborhood or office who everyone despises, talks poorly on? Who in your family is that like crazy, don't-go-near uncle? Who in your life is viewed by others as unwelcomed or unwanted name of the person or persons that just popped into your head, that's probably a good place to start in initiating a genuine and authentic relationship because that's exactly where Jesus would have started. It's an action that says, you matter. I see you, just like I see you, Zacchaeus. I see you, and I don't care what others will think or say. When's the last time someone could say of you or of me, like, look who he's having over for dinner tonight. Can you believe he's having dinner with that sinner, that outcast? What do we learn from Jesus in caring for the lost? One, is that we take the initiative, inviting ourselves into the lives of the lost, especially the unwanted and unwelcomed. And secondly, we uphold the dignity of the lost. Second, we uphold the dignity of the lost. And this is hard, but no matter the, the sin, every person is an image bearer, right? Which means every person deserves their dignity to be upheld as one made in the image of God. And we see Jesus do this in really three uh, simple ways with Zacchaeus in upholding, fighting to uphold Zacchaeus' dignity, uh, One, he calls Zacchaeus by his name. He calls Zacchaeus by his name, not by how he's perhaps thought of or how he even thinks of himself. I imagine Zacchaeus more often than not was called very unpleasant names by the Jewish community that hated him, by the Romans who could care less about him. But but Jesus doesn't like switch on the megaphone and start broadcasting like, this is a sinner who's done all this, Blast it for all to know. But he looks him in the eyes and calls him by his proper name. Who he is. When Emily and I lived in Chicago, we attended a church of about 100 people similar to this. And every Sunday the pastor would lead us through communion. And it was a church where you came forward and and the pastor would distribute the elements. And he would say, James, the body of Christ broken for you. James, the blood of Jesus spilled for you. Every week, literally every time I would come forward, he would say my name in those words together. Now here's the deal, a little secret. I uh, I was an unfaithful church attender. I was in college, not that that's an excuse, but I was like very unknown, very spotty attendance at this church. I had like one conversation with this pastor, but without fail, every time I came forward, he would remember my name. He wouldn't label me by like unfaithful church attender. He would say, James, the body of Christ broken for you. And by being known by who I was, I felt welcomed. I felt like I belonged. There's a dignifying power in recognizing people for who they are, be made in the image of God. Jesus upholds Zacchaeus' dignity in three ways, calls him by his name. Secondly, he, he demonstrates really simply a desire to spend time with Zacchaeus, right? I think as Christians, I know in my own heart, there's a tendency that we have to separate, separate, separate from sinners. Sometimes we think that if I hang with sinners, I'm going to get like a sin disease. And certainly there has to be wisdom. I'm not just going to go with my neighbors to a strip club, right, to hang out for the sake of hanging with the lost. There's probably freedom to do so with high accountability, but that's just something I'm not not going to do that. I don't feel comfortable with that. I'm not going to do that. However, we must learn from Jesus that he did not come into our world to separate from sinners, but he came to spend time with sinners. When I was dating Emily, her sister... And brother-in-law lived in Nebraska. And our first trip out there, one of our first trips out there, right as we got out of the car, Topher, Emily's brother-in-law, like, I'm getting out of the car. He, like, greets me at the car saying, James, I have the perfect spot for us to go watch the football game. It's like an eight-hour trip, ten-hour trip. As Soon as I get out of the car. At this point, he, he didn't know anything really about me. We met maybe a few times, and he knew I loved sports. And so what does he do? He intentionally thinks of a way to purposefully spend time with me. That was 11 years ago, but I still remember it like yesterday. I was an outsider to Emily's family. And here's somebody within the family with a desire to spend time with me. And that was meaningful. And as we intentionally spend time with the lost, no strings attached, it communicates care and love, doesn't it? Jesus upholds Zacchaeus' dignity in three ways. Calls him by his name, demonstrates desire to spend time with him, and then lastly he gladly receives the gifts that Zacchaeus can offer him. In a sense, Jesus is saying to Zacchaeus, "Hey, there is something that you can do for me. There's something I need. I need food. I need a meal. I need companionship, and I want you to provide that for me." We saw Jesus do this with the woman at the well. Requesting water when he's thirsty. And as a dad, I I see this often in the life of my kids, too. I can say to my little six-year-old Lucy over here, I can say, Lucy, like, um, there's some people coming over. Like, could you you help me uh, clean up the living room? Let me rephrase. Lucy, would you help clean up the living room before our friends come over? It's usually like a 70-30, like, no thanks, Dad. But if I rephrase the request, like, Lucy, without your help, Dad's just not going to get it done. Like, I need you in this moment to get this task accomplished. It's usually a 70-30, like, sure, Dad, I'd be glad to help. It's this power of being needed that goes a long ways. Building bridges of trust and friendship. Sometimes as Christians, we behave as if we have everything to give and nothing to receive. Acknowledging Our need of kindness or generosity from an unbeliever is not only a help to our own lives, but it opens a pathway of trust and friendship from those who might only expect scorn or judgment from that of a Christian. What do we learn from Jesus in caring for the lost? One, we take the initiative, especially the unwanted and unwelcomed. Secondly, we uphold their dignity as image bearers of God. And lastly, We present Jesus, not ourselves, to the lost. We present Jesus, not ourselves. The transformation of Zacchaeus is a testimony of the power of Jesus to save. From a despised tax collector to an early church leader, it's the power of Jesus who transforms lives, not us, not me, not you. So as we initiate with the lost and seek to uphold their dignity, we do so in ways that always make much of Jesus and less of ourselves. And may the lost in our lives never have to climb a tree to see over us or around us to see Jesus. But may we present Jesus and, and bring the lost into the greatness of who he is, into his compassion and mercy and power to transform their lives. And may we remember that the story of Zacchaeus is our story too. Like Zacchaeus, we were despised and outcasts before God. But in his grace and compassion, Jesus exchanges his place in the heavenly places, right? To stoop down to our lowly height, like the height of Zacchaeus and climbs upon our tree in which we dwelled and counting our sins as his dying our death, granting to us his life. It's the gospel. Jesus loves the lost. And as the church once lost, may we love the lost too. Amen? Jesus, we come before you now in this moment recognizing our own position before you That we were lost, outcast, headed towards destruction. So, Lord, we praise you for your mercy and grace and power to save. Lord, we worship you this morning. We worship you, Jesus. The beauty of the gospel, the power to transform lives. Lord, may we truly live as sent ones. declaring and demonstrating the greatness of who you, Jesus, are to those around us in our everyday life. Oh, by the power of your spirit, would that be so? In your name we pray, amen.